Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic. You can find them at streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that's become integral to my research process. I first discovered them about a year and a half ago, a little bit over now. Since then, they have built out an incredibly robust transcript library. I read it almost daily. Stream by Mosaic provides over 300 expert interviews per week. 70% of their experts are found exclusively on stream, and each interview goes through three layers of compliance screening. Recently, someone said stream is table stakes for good fundamental analysis, and I couldn't agree more. Please see streamrg.com where you can sign up for a 14-day trial and use the promo code BREW to get a more robust understanding of some of the companies in your portfolio or that you're researching. This episode features Will Thompson. Will runs the firm Massive Capital, M-A-S-S-I-F Capital, which describes itself as a comprehensive solution to real asset investing. He and I met at a Manual of Ideas event in 2019. I thought he was super fascinating to speak to. And given some of the interesting commodities, I thought that Will would be a great and timely guest. He's super thoughtful. He's got an, a really cool background. And he's got some really interesting takes on ESG, specifically the environmental component. Given that he is a real asset investor, think mining, think steel, think things that create 60% of global carbon emissions. He's got an interesting perspective and one that I don't hear discussed often. So I hope that you all enjoy the conversation. I definitely did. Stick with it, I hope, because I think it would be very hard if you're like me not to learn something in this one. A little different from last week's with Muji, but equally as insightful, I think. Stop by Twitter on Wednesday, the 26th at 4.30 p.m. I'll be doing a follow-up space, and I'm hoping that Will can join. My apologies for not doing it Monday, but I'm going to be with the homie Jason Buck in Miami. Hit me up if you're down there. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. Bienvenido. Anyway, I digress. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. I am happy to be joined today by Will Thompson. We met at Manual of Ideas. We did. We did. We've met quite a few people at Manual of Ideas, or at least I have. I think you have as well. Yeah. It's a good organization. Shout out to John. Absolutely. Absolutely. Try to give John some love whenever I can. I think that makes sense. Makes sense. I, I try to talk with him as often as I can as well. I uh, sometimes I wonder how good his idea flow is. Like if if I ever talk to him about something and he he doesn't even you know give me a flinch, I'm like that's okay. I know how much you hear. Yeah, I think he must get a lot of ideas passed to him. I often wonder if any. I mean, you know, we present a lot at their conferences. I always wonder who who if anyone follows us in on any of the things we suggest. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So. 
Well, Grants, too, you have been featured in a number of times and spoke at the conference recently, right? I did this year. It was a great, uh, it was kind of like the highlight of my year. I'd never been to the conference. I'd never met Jim, but I had been on his podcast. Frequent reader was not, as he said, a fully paid up subscriber until this year. I, I sort of bit the bullet. <laughs> Finally, uh, got tired of getting slipped copies. Um <laughs> at random times um, and spoke about our sort of outlook firm's outlook on the energy transition. So it was, it was good. Do you, uh, you know, when you and I talked in uh, at, at manual of ideas, you told me a little bit about your background, which is definitely non-conventional or unconventional, <laughs> conventional, I guess. Do you want to tell people a little bit about what you did to get here? Yeah, sure. So Father worked in finance, so I was always sort of around finance. Started on Wall Street as an intern, 16, was the youngest, youngest intern on Wall Street, supposedly, for, for a while. In investment banking, decided I didn't want to be an investment banker at uh, 21, just, just as they made me an offer. And sort of path has diverged from the traditional ever since. Went off to Asia for a year, just traveled around, came home, uh, worked for a private equity firm that was really just one guy's money, just getting deployed sort of however he felt like it was get, you know, would make sense. Then went to grad school and studied political risk and specifically sort of political risk associated with natural resource projects in emerging markets. How do you choose that? Did not want to go and get an MBA because that's what everyone else was doing at the time. Huh? No, it was. Uh, so one of the things that this private equity firm, if you will, that I was working for wanted me to look at was student lending. And so this was 2008, 2009. And I, I'm by no means an expert on student lending anymore, but, but I spent a year studying the industry and then some policy came down the pipeline and the opportunity we thought we would pursue just evaporated. Huh. And I was kind of fascinated that the government passed a regulation and, you know, this opportunity just disappeared. And uh, so I went to, I was in Boston at the time. I went over to Harvard, just sort of started talking with some professors there about, you know, some other examples of this type of thing. And then he shut down the private equity firm. And so I said, well, I better go back to graduate school as, as people sometimes do uh, when they get fired. Um, and uh, <laughs> my choices were an MBA or something off the beaten track. And I proposed to a professor writing this master's thesis. Um, and he said, great, apply for this program. I applied for the program. And that's basically what happened. That's cool. Yeah. Then... Uh, Actually, while in grad school, I wrote a bunch of papers on Afghanistan, basically arguing that looking at Afghanistan as an us versus them, as we often do in conflicts, good guys versus bad guys, was the wrong way to think about it. Because the Taliban was a multifaceted group with lots of different agendas. And so really, we were fighting in Afghanistan for market share versus other people. General Reddit thought it was interesting and invited me out for a job. So I went out to Afghanistan for nine months and worked on this general staff. 
That's awesome. Came home, then got an offer to work at a Lloyd's of London insurance syndicate that was starting up operations in New York, writing political risk insurance policies. Helped build that business up and then said, I want to go off on my own and started massive capital with uh, in the grand scheme of things, no experience running a hedge fund, no experience managing outside money and $250,000 of my own capital. And that was it. And uh, I got told multiple times that I was crazy and that, <laughs> that it wouldn't work. It still hasn't quite, you know, we're, we're still, we're five years in. So I think that's a great run thus far, but you know, we got a long way to go still. Yeah. That's well, I think, uh, I think, signs are pointing upward for you. Hopefully. <laughs> you seem to be a guy that creates opportunities for himself. So that's that's a good thing. So, okay. So what does Massive specialize in or what would you say your view of the world is? Hmm. So when I was working for the Lloyd Syndicate, we focused exclusively almost on emerging markets and natural resources. And of course, my political risk background also focused on natural resources. And my time in Afghanistan focused on a lot of economic development, which for them was natural resources based. So when I started Massive Capital, the idea was that we would focus on the businesses that I'd been writing insurance policies for, which were natural resources companies. Uh, And rather than just participate in the downside, which in insurance is kind of what you do, we would participate in the upside. So we invest in energy, materials, and industrials, which is our sort of understanding of the real asset universe. Energy is everything from oil and natural gas to renewables to electricity. Materials is everything from mining, which is sort of our bread and butter, to agriculture, to we've invested in salmon farmers. And then industrials is a whole mess of things that is quite confused as a category. Yeah. Will you get into infrastructure at all? Yeah, we've done some infrastructure at times, mostly energy infrastructure. We've looked at some road infrastructure companies in Brazil and Italy, dodged a bullet on one in Italy. Uh, Venti, I, th- I think is what it was. That was a couple of years ago. So we've done a little bit of infrastructure. It's definitely a real asset that we like. It's really hard to get access to in public equities, Hmm. at least in my opinion. It's usually a little expensive. It trades a lot on its dividend, and the dividends have been mediocre as of late. Makes sense. Yeah. Perception of safety, and then all of a sudden it evaporates or something like yeah, that. Yeah. I, I could see that. You really can't charge very much. You know, toll roads is a big one. And then the other thing is that I will say that that is one area where the political risk has shown itself to, it, it can be kind of nasty at times. You know, you can't move the asset, you can't pick it up. It requires no expertise to run a toll road. And so the states tend to renegotiate these public-private partnerships that mm. come into play to sort of build the asset. So, when I said makes sense, it's one of those things that it feels, uh, and this is just gut, that like okay, when it's running well, 
people underwrite it as if it's always going to run well. And then that negative risk can come out and then you're just like, oh, that's there goes the return stream. I think that with everything we do, the cyclicality produces produces that outcome. But infrastructure might be one of the more pernicious sort of places for it. But that sort of straight line extrapolation, the future, it happens with absolutely every industry we look at. That almost could be a way of defining the industries we look at. Yeah. So you are not in the never sell crowd, suffice it to say. No, I'm not. And actually, I, I'm not sure I really believe that there is any never sell investments. I'm sure that we could, we could pull up the manual of ideas crowd. I'm sure we could have this debate. But I would almost argue that everyone is a trader, but just on different timelines, and that there is no such thing as a buy and hold forever investment. Well, we'll see if uh, future guests disagree. I tend to, uh, I tend to agree with you, but I have been, I have sold some things that I wish that I didn't sell uh, in <laughs> retrospect. So that that's how life goes. Yeah. Well, we've all been there before. Yeah. That sell decision is tough. My my father, who used to run a hedge fund, he always he, he always told me that uh, you can't make a good sell decision because because you either sell too early in which case you regret selling, or you sell too late, in which case you should have sold earlier and you regret that. So, so any sale <laughs> is, is going to be negative on your emotional and sort of psychological well-being. I like that. That's a, that's a funny way to look at it. I'm going to try to dispose of that from my mind, though, because <laughs> otherwise I'll just sit here and beat myself up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I excel at that. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, you wrote, you sent me some things to review as as we were prepping for what we were going to talk about, and one of the things that struck me was uh, your views on ESG, and I was hoping that I can help guide you through a conversation to lay out kind of what you want to say on it, because when I uh, the first sentence or first paragraph or whatever came through my head. I don't know if it's exactly what you wrote, but in my head it read, you know, there's the perception of ESG in some of these companies, but if they're outsourcing all of their mining to, you know, child labor and that company is off balance sheet, that's not really ESG. And where we might want to focus is in the company that's doing the mining to have a true impact on the globe. And when I read it, I thought, man, that's smart. Um, is that a is that a fair characterization of what I read, or did I make that up? No, no, I th- I think that's a pretty fair characterization. The way I often think about it is, I think about that TV show. I don't know if it still exists, but there was that TV show, The Biggest Loser, where they like yeah. tried to get you know overweight people to work out and eat right. And it, I always think about it sort of like ESG right now sells you a bunch of you know like NFL running backs um, and says that you know, there's, there's improvement that can be made there in terms of their athleticism and their, their weight or something. And you're sort of like, well, mm, uh, if I'm on the biggest loser, I'm going to pick the big fat guy who's got a lot of problems. And all I need to do is get him to eat healthy or stop eating McDonald's and he's going to drop weight. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be the guy who coached the biggest loser, you know, rather than go after people who have no problem, you should 
sort of try and invest capital in people who have a problem and are trying to, you know, trying to solve that problem. And so that's people who have carbon emissions um, rather than people in the case of climate change, for example, who have no carbon emissions. And I think based on all the research we've done, you know, most ESG products are bought primarily because people think there's going to be a positive environmental impact associated with their investment. But if your investment goes to Apple or Facebook or any number of these companies that sit quite high on the list of, of ESG allocations, you just don't really have a carbon footprint. They don't really have a negative impact unless they can't really have a positive impact either. Especially companies that you know make no effort to, you know, like Apple, for instance, it doesn't do anything or innovate anything that has a positive environmental impact. So it's just sort of a non-variable. Well, might they argue that uh, they're investing in? I mean, I don't, I don't follow Apple's yeah. ESG stuff, but just hypothetically, might they, might they say like, well, our our campus is self-sustaining, and look at what an example we're setting. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely do. And I think that's, that's accurate. And there's something to that. But we calculated what their carbon emissions were in 2019. And it was a half of 1% of US emissions, which is to say it, it falls outside or it falls inside the margin of error on measurements for the nation's carbon emissions. So whether they decarbonize or not, whether they set a good example or not, I mean, it's kind of neither here nor there. Um, admittedly, setting a good example is hard to measure the impact of. But that they decarbonize isn't going to make a difference to, say, climate change. Well, so I guess if you were the king of ESG allocation or, or investing or whatever, what, where would you focus people's attention on how to have the biggest impact yeah. uh, when they're thinking about ESG or, or reducing carbon footprints? I do think it's a really hard problem for, so for someone like BlackRock, with all that money, whatever they got, $9 trillion now, I, I don't really know what someone like that does. They've got a problem that I myself don't want. I, I don't want to have $9 trillion. They, as far as I'm concerned, they don't invest, they just buy everything, right? And, I'm sure they'd argue. But I think that in terms of individuals, you want to allocate your portfolio to a mix of companies that enable the transition to a low carbon economy. If the environment, if if the environment is your primary concern within this ESG framework, you want to allocate to firms that can enable the transition with the product they produce. So that would be guys who mine copper, guys who produce wind turbines, solar panels you know, renewable diesel fuels, all sorts of, there are all sorts of different sort of enablers of low carbon, of, the, of a low carbon economy. And then you want to invest in companies that are transitioning. So that would be a steel producer who we need steel. It's very carbon intensive, but there are ways to start to approach a zero carbon steel. And so there are steel companies who are focused on trying to shift their business models. And so you want to be invested in a mix of those enablers and transitioners. At least that's the way we look at it. Do you think, um, like, is it possible to view 
you know, BP's always got this beyond petroleum marketing gimmick. Uh, I shouldn't call it a gimmick. Uh, that's that was almost came out and then it did. But I digress. Uh, like, you know, is it possible to have an oil company that is ESG or, or should they just be off limits? I, I think we absolutely need oil. Com- I mean, look, 80% of our energy globally still comes from hydrocarbons or coal. And that's not going to change anytime soon. I mean, I know everyone wants it to, and I, I know that everyone's out there saying 2030 now, you know, we pushed from 2050 to 2030 quite quickly. But the fact of the matter is that the infrastructure associated with the energy system and the uses for energy, which are just endless, that transition, it's going to take much, much longer than people think, um, and much longer than a lot of these nice sounding plans that we see governments proposing. And so we still need oil companies. And more importantly, I think the transition is the transition to a low carbon economy is in essence a capital allocation question and is in essence the largest industrial activity, largest industrial investment activity the world has ever seen. Everything needs to change because the foundation of everything, energy, needs to change. And so in order to do that, your economy still needs to run. It still needs to run well. And until, you know, alternative assets that can generate energy exist, we still need oil. And so oil is critical to the transition because it will fuel the economy that can transition. The other thing is that one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest problems we have is that you know there are about two billion people on Earth that still burn solid waste and solid fuel. That's wood, charcoal, etc., for heating, for energy, for food, etc. And those people all want to improve their quality of life. And improving quality of life tends to reduce carbon intensity. And so you know, development is critical to the transition, and that doesn't occur without oil and natural gas either. So we're invested in, we think investing in companies like Equinor, like BP, although we are skeptical that BP can manage the transition as quickly as they claim they're going to, makes sense in a lot of portfolios. But, you know, you've got to be selective. We, we selected Equinor. Equinor is big in offshore wind, which leverages their offshore oil and natural gas experience. It complements their skill set nicely, and so it makes sense for them. BP has taken an all of the above strategy and is doing a little bit of everything. I'm a little more skeptical of, of that than I am sort of a targeted approach uh, from the oil company perspective. I mean, BP seems, uh, as somebody who's just an observer, like they almost have the same problem that a government has in that they're so large and so sprawling that delivering a happy message is maybe more important than like actually delivering by 2030. Right. So if we say we're going to, we're going to transition by 2030 and then they come out and they say, actually, it's going to be 2035. I mean, do investors actually really care? I I would argue probably not as long as they can show that there's like progress being made. I know that that's maybe not the 
I mean, that's what I think the truth is. Yeah, so. I, I don't think that's cynical or anything. I, I think I think you're spot on. I, I think that you can show progress is not only the most important thing, but it's going to be the most important thing for quite a while. Just because the transition is going to take so much longer than people people sort of think. I, I don't mean to be like a neophyte when I ask this, but but you said that now twice. I mean, this like why will it take so long? I understand there's current in infrastructure, but like if somebody coming into this is thinking, well, look at all the Teslas being sold and why can't we transition quickly? We should be able to. Like what is their brain not fully appreciating? Well, so I think that let's start with sort of what the sort of quote unquote solution set at the moment is, and it's renewables and EVs. Now, with renewables, you've got increased material intensity, increased capital intensity, and you need to find places to put them all too. Um, and there's literally a land scarcity issue with regards to renewables if you want to transition your entire grid. Um, and so you've got a huge build problem um, in terms of getting people to accept you know, putting a wind turbine behind their house or whatnot, just like you'd have with an oil refinery or something, except the footprint on oil refineries is really quite small in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. So with renewables, you have a time to build problem. You have a capital problem. You also have a materials problem, just building enough of these things fast enough. So for instance, transitioning the U.S. electrical grid by 2035, I think is what, what the, the Biden goal is. Just the number of wind turbines, the number of solar panels, et cetera. You're just talking about consumption levels that don't have associated production. And then perhaps even more pressing in regards to EVs is, is sourcing the materials for the batteries. The batteries are incredibly material intensive and incredibly energy inefficient in comparison to oil and natural gas. Mines take forever to build. Uh, I can only, you know, a copper mine takes five to 10 years to build. And that's after a five to 10 year process of finding it and permitting it. And so we don't have anywhere close to enough copper production to, to build all the batteries we need. We had a, had a blog post let me see here, give you some stats. And these were, these are, are this is from our work. Um, so someone can critique this if they want. But, you know, years of production. So, so in order to, to transition all the vehicles globally, we need two years of total copper production or 6% of global reserves all, you know, to do that. But of course, you also have batteries for stationary storage. And when you start to include those, because renewables have a, you know, intermittency, you, know, you need 22 years of annual copper production just for those two, two sources or use cases. So, so just taking a step back real quick. So if we transition all of the autos, you said 6%? Yeah, 6% of global copper reserves just go into the And batteries. those autos that are getting charged are being charged predominantly from natural gas or coal plants. Yeah, probably. Correct? I mean, in China, yeah, for example, that's the largest 
market at the moment for EVs. It'll all be natural gas, coal, and you know, a couple other things. And then if we take a step back and we say, okay, well, we don't want to charge it with natural gas and coal. We want to charge it with some sort of alternative energy. We're going to need a battery to store it yeah. because alternative energy has peaks and troughs and you need to have the base load covered. And for that battery storage, you need 22%. No, 22 years worth of energy. 22 years. I'm sorry. Production. Yeah. Yeah. Lithium, 706 years. Whoa. So, you know, we have a, this is a shift. I, I this energy transition, the phraseology I find problematic because it's, uh, it, it is a transition, but it's a transition from one material intensive energy source to another material intensive intensive energy source. It's just different. Um, we get rid of carbon emissions, but we create these other sort of environmental challenges. It's not like mining. I've been to quite a few mines. They are not, you know, environmentally friendly. You got acid running all over the place. You got a giant hole in the ground. You clear cut, you know, acres and acres of land to dig a giant hole. You know, we're not improving our environmental footprint by shifting to batteries. We're just changing our environmental impact. Hmm. Kind of takes a different, uh, a different spin on climate change. Yeah, we go from a carbon emissions issue to a, like a biodiversity issue um, and a water, huh. a water issue. So it's, um, yeah, there's no, there's no impact-free, environmentally impact-free lunch here. I haven't thought of it as a biodiversity issue. I like how you said that. Uh, it's because I don't spend a ton of time thinking about this, but yeah. that makes a ton of sense. And if you're pulling all this stuff out of the ground, bound to have some consequence elsewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh depending on who who's doing the pulling out of the ground, if you will, it can be more or less impactful. Um, we had looked at a, a cobalt asset in Indonesia, I think two years ago, called Ramu, and uh, it was run by a Chinese firm. We didn't, we chose not to invest in it for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but one of the reasons was, is we were skeptical of their sort of environmental management. And lo and behold, about a month after we decided to pass on it, you know, they had a minor, minor tailing dam break and, and this sort of toxic waste just poured into the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, again, it's not impact free. It's just a very different impact. Frankly, it's an impact that could be as significant in the fullness of time as climate change. After all, these things are all interconnected in ways that are poorly understood. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating because I, I have uh, friends and people that I talk to that are so, and I, and I don't even mean this in the wrong way. I think it's factual what I'm about to say, but I, my perception could be wrong, uh, that they're like so convinced that going to an EV for instance, is like the, the answer and is, is solving a problem, right? And might we be approaching a scenario where we're solving one problem and creating another one that could potentially be even larger or whatever? And, and I don't, 
I don't even know how to have that conversation because it's not my my expertise, but it's what I've enjoyed reading your material. Yeah, and I mean the the other so the other part about this, you know, what started this all is your question about what what people don't understand about this transition while it take longer. You know, people think renewables and EVs, as you said, but less than ten percent of global emissions come from cars. Less than less than 40% come from cars and the electricity system. So, so burning coal and things like that. So you deal with cars and you deal with the electricity system and you've only addressed maybe 40% of emissions. You, you still have- six- Better than nothing yeah. though. Oh, no doubt. And, and if I lost 40% of my excess weight, doctors might say I'm healthy. <laughs> yeah, it, well, I, don't, I don't deny it. And you know, we wholeheartedly support you know, the building of, of renewables and and EVs and like the the new Ford EV truck is you know on my list of, of cars I think are really cool that are yeah dude that thing's pretty sweet oh yeah it looks very cool and it's got all sorts of useful bells and whistles uh, for someone who lives in a city and has no need for a truck which is which- the only thing <laughs> well everyone has a need for a truck that goes zero to sixty in three seconds of course naturally. I just want to go. The only thing I don't understand, man, is I don't understand why they don't just make these cars look like cars. Man, I don't get that one either. It drives me nuts looking at that, uh, the front grill of a Tesla. You know how it's like flat? Yeah. It drives me nuts. I'm like, it doesn't really look like a car. I don't know. It's, It's not attractive. I'm on Instagram. I'm always looking at cars and stuff. And I was looking at the new Mercedes and, and it looks like, you know, the inside looks like an S class. Mm. And then I look at the outside and I'm like, why didn't you guys just make it an S class? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's but a good question. We're, we've digressed. Yeah. No, but I've, I've I, don't, I just don't get times. that. They're I, like, okay, it's, it's electric. We'll make it nerdy looking. Yeah. All right. Whatever. I will not be buying a cyber truck though. That, that's for sure. No, I won't either. Although I'll tell you what, that uh, the uh, EV Hummer looks pretty sweet. Yeah, that does look kind of cool, and it's got some sort of uh, you know, it, it can turn the tires and, and sort of go sideways. I don't know what yeah, I'll do. I don't know what I'll do with that, but it looks cool. <laughs> I kind of think that the auto transition is just going to occur because people are going to experience how much better an EV performs. Uh, and they're just going to be like, all right, I, I want to drive something that pins me to the back of my seat more than like, I really care about this. I think you're right. I mean, you look back at the history of energy transitions, right? And, you know, first of all, there hasn't really ever been a, an energy transition like the one we're proposing now. All historical transitions have been additive, right? We use more wood for energy now than we ever have. We use more coal than we ever have. We use more oil, natural gas, et cetera. So we just add. But those transitions all occurred because a technology, if you will, coal, oil, came on the scene and it was just better than, than everything else. Hmm. And I, you know, breakthrough technology, I think, is how this transition occurs in the end, or it doesn't occur, probably. Because otherwise, it's got to be top down, government driven. And I'll admit to some skepticism uh, whether that that's going to work or not. But I, I think you're right. People will buy EVs because it's it's a better car, yeah. or they won't buy. 
Yeah. I, th- I think uh, my dad used to sell golf carts. And the other thing that I learned that I do think applies here is uh, I'm going to mess this up because it's been a while since he sold them. But I think in, a, in an electric, in electric car, there were like 28 moving parts in a cart. And in a gas cart, there's like 180. Yeah. So when he would sell a gas cart, he'd be like, oh, I've got a maintenance stream forever. And when he'd sell an electric cart, it would be like maybe a solenoid would break or batteries would need to be replaced. But the maintenance stream was not very good on that. Uh, my understanding, and you know, look, we don't actually invest in, in car companies, but my understanding is that the cars have significantly fewer parts. Yeah. So like, I get, I get that why people would be like, okay, this is superior tech. That's why I'm going to buy it. But I don't buy that. Like, I don't, I don't know. I agree with you. I think if it's for um, environmental reasons, it's going to have to be from the top down. And I too am skeptical on whether or not top down solutions are going to be effective. I mean, in in the end, we all sort of, you know, we can care about the environment and some people can take that concern to a, you know, a significant level that's all encompassing for their lives. But for us with, you know, people with kids, people, you know, running businesses, et cetera, it's hard for that sort of global vague concern to rise to the level that we actually, you know, make, specific economic decisions around it. At least I, I think it is. So you have, um, you've got a much better sense of how the, the energy industry impacts different countries. And one thing that is, has bothered me uh, viscerally, and I haven't put data to my thoughts, but I'm pretty sure they're right, is like when I hear this commentary on getting off oil or getting off coal or whatever, I think about the countries that haven't come up yet and it feels like we're pulling a ladder up behind us. I mean, how how would it be possible to transition the world off of what we're currently on while also helping people that you're that you're talking about people that are still burning solid waste? Like, don't we need to be invested in what we're currently invested in in order to allow the globe to have a greater quality of life? Yeah, I think so. And the uh, at at um, COP twenty six this year in Glasgow, the the annual or I don't know if it's annual, but the the big climate gathering, if you will, that occurs. It's sponsored by the UN every year. The Nigerian prime minister or oil minister, I don't remember which, his comment was, "Look." You know, for you guys in the United States, you have one energy transition to go through. We, we have to do sort of like two leaps to get to where yeah. you are. And so we're engaged in multiple energy transitions. And, you know, this challenge, I don't know, it, it's, it represents not only a scientific and political dilemma, but there's an ethical and moral one as well, which I, I think is sort of what you're getting at. You know, the citizens of the world's least developed countries are not only most at risk from climate change, but also are the people who have sort of aspirations for economic prosperity and growth that we've only figured out how to do via a sort of resource-intensive industrialization process. So, you know, no no one's figured out a development model that isn't resource intensive and industrialization and and frankly polluting. You know, if someone comes up with one, there's a path forward. But otherwise, you know, you 
you develop steel industry, you develop a, a mining industry, you develop railroads, you, you know, and then, then you develop a car industry and then you, then you get an airline and it goes like that. And all of these things are improvements to human health and prosperity, uh, but there are environmental trade-offs and that we need to find a way to balance that trade-off better, the human health and prosperity versus uh, environmental impact. And, and to date, I don't think uh, we found a, an appropriate trade-off and the EV renewable path does not seem like the appropriate uh, path for a lot of those countries. Yeah, it seems like their their only advantage in the conversation that we're having is that they don't have maybe some of the legacy infrastructure that we do. Yeah. But that seems like a, a small consolation prize. I would tend to agree. Yeah, uh, it's pretty small. So uh, just kind of circling back to something that we were talking about a little bit earlier, and I'm sorry to jump around a little, but you know, you mentioned that there's what EVs are account for like 6% of, or, or yeah, so I, for some cars, reason I have 6% in my head. Yeah. So cars, keeps coming back. automobiles, passenger vehicles, they're about 6% of sort of global emissions. And then, electricity. and then the remaining 34% was it's electricity and sort of that's 40% of emissions, give or take. Okay. And that leaves us with 60. Yeah. So what do we do to attack that 60% or, what as investors uh, do you think we should be thinking about, you know, thematically where to be looking for? Because this is pretty clearly something that that's going to be a very long term trend. Right. Yeah, so so. I, I think that there's great opportunity in these other emissions and those other for, for sort of like. It, one of the things that I'm always struck by is how the term innovation, technological innovation is everyone always thinks of basically consumer electronics. Like you think technology innovation, you think consumer electronics. Yeah. Well, well, How fast is my uh, internet connection and yeah. my phone? The, this other 60% of the world's emissions come from areas and industries where there's going to be a lot of hard science technological innovation. Okay. New processes, uh, new materials, and these are steel companies, these are aluminum companies, the entire chemical industry is based on hydrocarbons, base, basically. Uh, natural gas and oil products are basically the feedstock for all chemicals. Pharmaceutical industry is a giant consumer of petrochemicals as precursors for the drugs we all take. So any of these industries can be part of the transition and will play an important role in the energy transition. We focus on those heavier industries like the steel industry and like the chemical industry. We think, I mean, the chemical industry in particular is quite creative, quite forward-looking. They spend a lot of money on R&D. There are a lot of interesting changes occurring in how we use chemicals, how we produce chemicals, and chemicals are in absolutely everything we consume. And so these old economy industries are going to experience over the next 10, 20, 30 years, rates of change in parts of their businesses that we would tend to associate with consumer electronics as they swap over the use of one petrochemical derived product for a new chemical that uh, is derived from some other process that doesn't involve carbon emissions, doesn't involve uh, oil and natural gas as a precursor. 
And I think, at least from our perspective, the, the European chemical companies are ahead of the curve in a lot of that transition. Um, but they're spending a lot of money, investing in a lot of R&D, and that should, we think, produce a lot of innovation that, that's well worth investing in. You know what's interesting about that is they are probably today, and I don't know this to be true, but somewhat like I hear European and chemical company, and all I think is like no one wants to touch it, no one wants to cover it. If they're investing, their earnings probably look like crap. They haven't grown in forever because they're probably cannibalizing some some you know what's going on. And if out of that comes some sort of growth engine, wouldn't that be an interesting outcome? Yeah. I, I mean, we tend to look at it that way as well. I think there are a couple of, of chemical companies who have made a splash with some battery-related chemicals and sort of battery-related materials, and they, they can be a little pricey because everything related to batteries these days is pricey. But generally speaking, uh, that sort of European complex I wouldn't call it bombed out, but it does not attract the attention that we think it warrants, at least from a fundamental sort of criticality to the economy combined with the changes that they're going to see and engage in over the next 20 years. Um, it's insanely unsexy. Oh, very. Everything we do is unsexy. I mean, I, yeah. I think it's sexy. I, I don't know what's sexier than an offshore oil rig. I mean, but... <laughs> There's a couple there things. There are a couple things. Okay. <laughs> I mean, very few. Very few. But a couple. Um, and no, but I, you know, what's interesting though is like, I, I, I hear that and I get intrigued, right? Because I, you know, I don't know. I, I was just reading by, uh, do you know Drew Dixon? Drew Dixon. Name's He's at uh, Albert Bridge. Yeah. He's great. He's a great guy. I actually think uh, you and him should talk because he he covered uh, a lot of Europe for a while. And I think um, I'll, I'll intro okay. you guys after this. But he has he's been studying like growth versus value, U.S. versus Europe and European value is just like not at all where you want to be. And I don't know if these industrials I, I, I'm not saying it's not where you want to be prospectively. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying the multiples would imply it's where people don't want to be today. Yeah. And if I think about like, where has everybody made a ton of money and where does talent want to go to? I don't think like it screams European industrial R and D, no. but I could totally see that setting up, you know, 20 years from now, people being like, how did everybody miss this? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's our bet to, to a degree. We, uh, I, I'll be, completely transparent. We don't have any chemical companies in the portfolio right now. So, you know, we like the overall thesis. We haven't found that company that we want to be invested in for the long term. But there's a lot of interesting things going on. And just a lot of creative people that are thinking about the future and the next innovation that's going to change the bottom line of the company. And when when you combine businesses that haven't really changed in, let's call it 50 to 75 years with a management team that says we need to change now and we're going to invest a lot in R&D to make those changes, come up with innovations that drive that change, I think there's, there's a great potential. Um, yeah. So. 
the tough thing today when you're looking at it is you have like this growth engine underneath something that's probably getting cannibalized. My buddy Chad, uh, Chaz, uh, refers to it as like the duck in a pond yeah. where the legs are swimming real fast and you can't really see them, right? Yeah. So the surface doesn't look like much. The work we've done, so that that's a huge problem. We run into it all the time. The work we've done looking at companies sort of like Orsted. So Orsted was the Danish national oil company and then they transitioned to offshore wind and they just, they dropped all their oil and transitioned to offshore wind. So looking at companies who already made the transition, of which there aren't that many, so we don't have a lot of case studies, but what we found is that the market tends to take note when the alternative revenue stream, let's say, hits 30%, and then when it hits 50%, it becomes the primary consideration. Um, So those two flags in the ground, if you will, 30% and 50%, not that we're like trying to time things in a like to the day perspective or something like that or in in a very deliberate way but just from a sort of catalyst perspective those two marks in the uh, lines in the sand seem to be quite significant for the market yeah well it makes sense to know that right i mean going in when it's a 10 percent having a high degree of confidence that the market's not going to care until 30 is a great way to be dead money. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I don't think anybody enjoys that. No, no. And, and uh, yeah, they, the, the uh, potential lost capital appreciation from being dead money and a value investment for too long is it's a, it's a quick way to lose your job as a professional money manager, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think that's objectively true. Man, something that I'm seeing throughout like throughout the complex and Andrew Walker's been talking about this too is like these cyclicals on current cash flows look so cheap and like it's there there are a few things truer I think than you don't want to buy cyclicals when they look cheap but uh, this time may be different. <laughs> and those are famous last words. But I was curious to hear your thoughts on that because I uh, I think there's a couple couple areas that you play in that are maybe benefiting or, or setting up in that sort of... Yeah. I mean, I think... So I, I tend to agree with you. You want to buy cyclicals probably when they look expensive. Um, just as that. Yeah, like infinite, undefined, super high PEs or yeah, whatever, yeah. right? I think there are a couple, couple of commodities within the electricity space, if you will, like copper, probably lithium, that you can get pure exposure to. So uh, one of the challenges with a lot of commodities is getting pure exposure in equity markets. So there are plenty of people who just mine copper. There are plenty of people who just mine lithium. Nobody just mines cobalt, right? You need to be invested in a copper miner to get cobalt. So that creates a little bit of messiness. But there are a couple of commodities, and I think cobalt or uh, lithium and copper would be two that I would sort of highlight as slightly more interesting, although copper I'd be a little worried about right now that we're probably going to see a a step change in what we think of as the long-term 
cost of production. And, and one of the things to think about is, is when you think about, especially mining, and that's a lot of what we're talking about, but we could talk about ag and, and fertilizers and things too. But when you think about mining, at least, there's sort of this spectrum of, of minerals that either are highly complex to mine, but you don't need to mine a lot of them. So diamonds, very complex to mine, but you really don't need a lot of diamonds to mine it. So you don't need to build a lot of infrastructure hmm. to asset uh, to commodities like iron ore, where it's very easy to mine. It's not complicated at all. You're basically just scraping dirt, red dirt off the ground. But the infrastructure associated with getting it to market is quite dramatic. So in Australia, they build railroads, ports, et cetera, to get the iron ore out of country. But the mining of it is just digging up red dirt. What's happening is some of these commodities are shifting in that spectrum. So copper being the perfect example. Copper, you used to be able to mine with modest geological and sort of mining technicality and modest infrastructure. Now what's happening is you're really shifting quite dramatically towards it being extremely complex to mine it and it requiring a lot of infrastructure, which means there's a step change in the cost of production, which means there needs to be a step change in the price which these miners get. So there, there's a, you know, I wouldn't call it a one-time inflation sort of offset, if you will, but it's sort of like a one-time jump in price. And for the commodities that are going to experience a fundamental change in their use case, I think you're, you're probably still okay. But you may experience volatility. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think right now, the, the perception, at least among generalists, is like how much of this is supply chain, how much of this is, you know, like I, I see a lot of, well, I'm seeing more, I should say, the theses of like the step change is coming. Uh, you know, a lot of energy is like governments are, you know, rest artificially restricting supply. And it's really hard to parse like how much of this is reality versus short term sort of, yeah. you know, and by short term, let's call it two to three years, COVID hangover type stuff. I, I, it makes it very noisy. Yeah, it makes it very noisy. And so we do not invest in commodities where we only have a macro thesis. And frankly, we want the macro thesis to be nothing more than a tailwind. And I think that's, that's one of the critical mistakes that I think a lot of generalists make, is they come up with what they think is a great thesis. But when you boil it down, it's really a macro thesis, which really makes it a macro investment. And you know, look, some people are good at that. Don't get me wrong. I myself am terrible at macro sort of like style investments. But there are other reasons why a mining company or an oil and natural gas company might move besides the price of the commodity. The commodity price should, you should try and find companies for which there are other catalysts than commodity price, because that in the end is what the macro thesis ends up being about the commodity price. And there are plenty of those, but they require more work than, say, investing in Rio Tinto. Rio Tinto is just going to trade with your commodity price, so you need to get your macro cycle right. That's really hard to do. Whereas a junior miner that's developing an asset, you have development risk. 
And then once the development risk has played out, you get a pop. Mining firms trade more like biotech firms, to be perfectly frank. They get a pop when they get a discovery, then they sell off, just like a biotech firm does when it's going through the FDA pipeline. Then when the drug hits and it's through the pipeline, it spikes again. Mining firms and most commodity producers trade in that same cycle, where there's a period of time where you are quite literally de-risking the asset, and it is either trading sideways or trading down. And so that's what we try to do. And by, by focusing on those types of companies, we avoid having to base it all on a macro thesis or a commodity price thesis. Huh. That makes sense. So, so you would wait, in theory, you wait until they prove out the asset, get that initial pop, and then you're watching them de-risk the asset. And while that's going on, maybe equity is getting a little bit impatient or they're going to, it's a yeah. different type of well, investor base. It's turning over. Yeah. Oftentimes when it get when they make a discovery and that initial pop, it then sells off afterwards because you get a large, you get a lot, bunch of people leaving. So that tends to be when we invest. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I think um, generalists and the natural resource space are risky. I would specifically say feces around the majors. If you see someone proposing a thesis around Rio Tinto or, or any of the majors, those I tend to find to be the weakest theses in regards to natural resources. Um, Interesting. Makes sense to me. It, it's where my brain would go and I would be bound to get crushed in. I, I think it's nice and uh, sexy. If, one, one always, you know, for some reason, getting that great macro thesis, it, it's, there's something cool about it. But boy, is it freaking hard. Yeah, well, it's. Uh, I, I think that there there's the perception of safety in a major, mm. as opposed to a minor, yep. right? Or or like a junior. But what what uh, is probably true is the perception is out of ignorance and not out of uh, true true uh, safety. If that makes sense. Yeah, I there's some truth to that for sure. <laughs> I think when we talked, I think we talked about Barrick Gold. And I think you told me something similar. You were just like, yeah, you, you don't want, I, I think you had like a real reason to, to not like it at that time. And I had like a half-baked concoct reason to maybe like it yeah. at that time. Well, Barrett, and I uh, think you were right and I was wrong. So, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't remember when this was because at one point we did invest in Barrett. It got bombed out with gold and was trading at $10 a share. And I think we talked in 2019. Oh, we were out. Of it. I think it was late yeah, yeah, 2019. We, we got out of it by then. Yeah. So uh, it got bombed out, traded down to 10. They brought in Jim Thornton, Jim, John, John Thornton to be the CEO. Yeah, the new CEO, right? I, I thought the guy was brilliant. Everybody else in the mining industry hated him because he wasn't a mining guy. He uh, gave everyone, what is that book called? He gave everyone on the management team, um, what's the book about? about the great management teams. Is it good to great? Maybe. Are the outsiders? The outsiders. The outsiders. Okay. He, he made everyone in the company, re he like bought him, bought like 5,000 copies of the outsiders and just handed them out to everyone in the company and said, this is what we're going to be. And then they merged with Rand Gold and Mark Bristow, who's brilliant, but it then popped to like 30. And at 30, uh, you took the gold price, you know, spot price plus 
25% or something. And that was, you know, the future discount cash flow value, you know, it was trading at that, that future discount cash flow value. And, and we sort of said, okay, we've had our 10 to 30 move. We're out because this is just going to trade with gold. Now. Can we talk about you exiting uranium despite Uranian Twitter uh, being all mad at you? Yeah. Yeah. If, uh, if you like, I mean, it's the same, it's very similar thesis. Um, well, why don't, why don't we, uh, why don't we set the stage for people that aren't deep in the uranium thesis? Yeah. What's what's the best way to uh, to describe this? Uranium mines are very very hard to get permitted. Is that fair? Well, any mine is hard to get permitted these days, but uranium mines are hard to get permitted, and uranium has been a historically very volatile asset commodity with a very limited consumer base, which niche metals just tend to be roller coaster rides. They're fun, um, but they're roller coasters. And so uranium uh, has always been a roller coaster. Something unique about the contracts too, right? To the- uh... The contracts really, you know, it, it, uh, it represents about 5% of the operating costs for, for most plants. So it really is, you know, if it doubles, it you know, doesn't really make a huge difference to the to the uh, the power plant operators and things of that nature, so that's sort of favorable. The contracts are highly opaque; nobody sees it. It all occurs behind, you know, closed doors, if you will. The it doesn't trade publicly. Like y- y- you and I can't go out and buy uranium. We uh, Cameco, for example, wouldn't sell it to us. We don't have the right permits. We don't, you know, so only certain people can buy it. And one of the bigger issues recently or over the last decade has been that as Russia has gotten rid of their nukes, they've taken all their highly enriched uranium, watered it down basically for for power plant usage. Uh, And there's just been just an endless amount of secondary uranium available on the markets for about a decade. And, And so it's just crushed the price for a long time. Yeah, and if you look at the if you look at the long term chart, it ripped in what like twenty ten or something like that. Yeah, went to over a hundred. Yeah, and then it it just got completely bombed out. So, I I sort of followed uranium Twitter for a little while, and it seemed like everybody was saying, "Okay, this is the next spike. This is the next spike." And. You had initiated a position in what, Kazataprom? Is that how you say it? Yeah, so I had followed, so to back up, I've, I've followed uranium for like 10 years, didn't do anything for the longest time. And I didn't do anything because the only thing on offer was Cameco, which I was sort of ambivalent about, or these junior miners with these theoretically great assets that just were not they were not being developed. They just owned the land package. And maybe the mine would get built, but not until uranium had moved, which is to say investing in those juniors was basically just betting on the uranium price. And for the longest period of time, I just wasn't willing to make that bet, like just betting on commodity uranium price. It just It didn't make a lot of sense to me. The setup seemed good, but I was cognizant of the fact that it could take forever to move. And it it took 10 years for it to move. 
Kazadimprom is the primarily state-owned uranium miner in Kazakhstan, and they went public two or three years ago. I don't remember when we invested it, when it went public. It has ample uranium, produces it very cheaply via a method called ISR, where they basically pump sulfuric acid into the ground and suck it up on the other side, and they get uranium out of it. Um, very cheap to do. In situ, right? In si- Isn't that yes. what it means? Yeah. yeah, ISR, in situ recovery. And they were free cash flow positive, rock solid balance sheet, big dividend. They sort of said, well, this is great. This is, a, this is an investment. This is an investable uranium mine. So we invested in Kaz Prom, and at the time, uranium was trading at, I don't know, we invested in Kaz at like $13 a share, and uranium was maybe $21 a pound. How'd you get comfortable with the political risk there or partnering with the state? Uh, I went out there. Went on a tour of a bunch of the mines, met with the management team, met with some of the, the government. I think that political risk is one of those things that is poorly understood in that people think it's a risk that just occurs and people are subject to it without any sort of any opportunity to do anything about it. But the reality is there's a lot of opportunity to do stuff about your political risk. And so when it comes to political risk, the question we often ask is, is this management team capable of managing the political huh. situation which they have to deal with? And in the case of Kaz Prom, the team was well capable of managing the political risk that might occur, uh, which keep in mind, is basically just local communities revolting, if you will. Like their, their top-down risk from, say, the federal government is quite limited. They provide a dividend to the federal government as they've moved from a state producer to more of a commercially-minded producer. That dividend has continued to go up as their cost of production has continued to go down. And confiscation risk tends to occur uh, at least historically, uh, when companies aren't paying a dividend back to the government that is substantial, not when they are paying a healthy dividend. That, that's something that people get confused about. They tend to think, you know, someone's going to confiscate an asset when it's really cash flowing and it's making the government a lot of money because they're like, we can get more. But that's not actually what ends up happening. It, it usually occurs when the government isn't getting paid. Hmm. And so we actually considered the political risk quite low. And like, for instance, today, there were the, the government of Kazakhstan stepped down just today or, or last night, I guess. The cost of fuel has gone up. There were riots in the capital um, and the government's going to turn over. Kaz, Adam Prom's down like 10% today on that news. But that, it's not going to impact their business whatsoever. They got long-term contracts with governments and institutions all over the world. It's a core source of revenue for the government. Uh, it's a key source of jobs throughout regions of the, uh, of the country that are sort of not great economies in, in, in the parts of the country that the mines are at. It probably doesn't make a lick of difference which, uh, whether the government turns over or not. So, hmm. Interesting. Going out, I, I didn't know... Uh... 
I didn't know if like as an American ambassador, whether or not, I mean, I just don't know that much about the geopolitics over there and how Russia like interacts with uh, Kazakhstan. And so, yeah, so Russia is obviously sort of a big influence on the country, but they're stuck between China and Russia. And their biggest customer for everything is basically China now. So they are more of a Chinese I'd say Chinese government has more influence over them than the Russian government at this point. And the Chinese are their biggest consumer of their uranium. That, that's where the Chinese are going to get the uranium for all their new nuclear reactors that they're building. I think maybe more broadly, a lot of what you're dealing with is in countries that I think as a, as a U.S. investor, there's the perception maybe of do are my legal rights going to be upheld? Yeah. Right. And like, how do you, how do you get comfortable with that? And it sounds like you go boots on the ground. Yeah. For some no, no, things. no, you, you got to go boots on the ground. Um, you got to go, you know, you got to go drink coffee in a coffee shop and look around and see, Oh, look, there's, there's like Starbucks here. And there's, you know, there's, there's, you got to go to these countries and walk around at night and be like, oh, okay, it's okay to walk around at night or, or it's not okay to walk around at night. And, you know, there are, um, or you've got to go. So we have a, a tin mine we're invested in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I was supposed to go out last year to visit it. And that obviously got, got COVID out, if you will. But, you know, that that mine's in the middle of nowhere, right? So is there any political risk? Well, it's, it's just in the middle of nowhere and there's a road and then they, they truck everything out. Well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But to really get a sense for it, you, you've got to go to these places. Uh, and some of them can be difficult to get to. Kazakhstan, it's just a flight to London. So Kazakhstan's a very easy country to visit. I'm not sure you want to take a vacation there because I'm not really sure there's a lot to see, but I would be fine taking my family there, right? You know, so that's kind of like one of the questions you want to ask. When you go to these places, you want to take your family there. You yeah. want to take your family there or you're okay taking your family there, then, you know, you don't need to worry about, uh, or, you know, what you need to worry about is different than say a country like the DRC where I would not want to take my wife to the DRC. Yeah. But that's also that's also primarily a discussion about security risk. Security risk is a really funny risk where you can often just pay your way out of a security risk. You just hire people, you know, you hire Blackwater or Blackwater doesn't exist anymore, but you hire people like that. They throw up a fence around your mine and nobody's allowed in. And you've got guys with, you know, AK-47s that are standing there at the door. You've dealt with your security risk. That's how they deal with it in the DRC, at least. So. Yeah, it's wild that, uh, I don't know, man, living here is a, a blessing. <laughs> yes, no, it very much is. But it does, uh, I think it's instructive to go to these places, especially sort of with the development discussion and sort of this, for us, climate change is an existential challenge, but you go to these places and you realize that what is our, or what we might consider an existential challenge here in the United States doesn't rank very high on their list. Yeah, I would think they don't care at all. I don't think they do. I mean, fine, somewhere on the on the spectrum, yeah. but like you got real problems. Yeah. No, I, I tend to agree. I, I don't think the average Kazakhstani or the average 
Congolese person cares very much at all or has spent very much time thinking about it, uh, especially when they know they have to go out and collect firewood for the to cook dinner tonight, right? Like, yeah, you're like trying to eat. Yeah. You're not worried about like whether or not the ocean's going to rise or something like that. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. It seems like on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah. climate change is like it's it, once life gets real good, you start worrying about stuff. Yeah, like it's, a, it's almost like a, a nice problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in a way, in a way, not to not to minimize it, but uh, yes, yeah, that's yeah, correct. Yeah. The ability to, the ability to worry about it is a nice problem yes. to have. Let's put it that way. So okay, so anyway, back to your uranium. Yeah, so so we. You know, we invested in Kaz Prom on the basis of, you know, looking at a discounted cash flow analysis. And, and with mining firms, that can be really easy sometimes, especially depending on the technical reports that they produce. In the case of Kaz Prom, they produced a bunch of technical reports that said exactly what they intend to produce for the next 30 years. The mines, the assets, the ge- geology, you can all sort of test that out and sort of test whether that thesis, do they have the resources to produce that? You do the math, you do a discount cash flow analysis, you pick a couple of uranium prices, uh, you put some probabilities on it, you you come up with a sort of probability weighted return for your DCF. Uh, and in our case, you know, I, I don't remember the exact uranium prices we use, but we came up with a, about a $35 value on the asset at uranium prices that we were willing to bet on. Now, it never hit our high uranium price, but we ran through all the other scenarios, if you will, in our scenario analysis and our other prices. Um, and it came, you know, it, it came to about a $35 value and it hit that earlier or l- last year. And so it hit our price and we sold. And the question, question at the time was sale was, are we just going to sit and hold this waiting for one final scenario where we see uranium rising to Sixty or seventy-five dollars as a long-term price. Do we wait for that one scenario to unfold, or do we take the gains that we've gotten based on the more comprehensive analysis that we've done, that includes a multitude of scenarios, any of which could still, you know, unfold? And for us, we said we don't want to just bet on, you know, the commodity price again. We want to bet on. The underlying fundamentals getting recognized by the market, which the price, whether the market understood those or not, I don't know, but the price of Kazadam Prom reflected, you know, full valuation on the fundamentals. And so at that point, we're moving on because we're not going to just bet on the commodity price. If the commodity price is the only catalyst, we just don't want to take that bet. Yeah. I I don't, you know, I don't know anyone who predicts commodity prices well. But you still need to invest in in commodity producers. Uh, I mean, not everyone does, but but we do. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I don't know if that made sense. I ran through that kind of quickly. No, it did make a ton of sense. I mean, what it sounds like to me is you had a scenario analysis and you got paid for the majority of your scenarios. And the only reason to stay was like maybe the bull case gets hit, but the probability of that happening was not worth sticking around for. Yeah. I mean, we absolutely, if you zoom out and think about probabilities, not from like a distribution perspective, but from a sort of propensity to create a scenario, like what, what is the, almost like what's the energy in the current environment that produces, you know, an outcome. The 
the setup for uranium is a good one for a big move in the price. But it's been that that way for 10 years. Mm. It could be that way for another 10 years. Uh, markets will stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, right? That's the old saying. Now, we're on the long side, so we weren't worried about solvency, but we were worried about, you know, the opportunity cost. Um, yeah, it destroys your IRR. Wait? Yeah. Yeah. And that's often how we, we at least, so our investments need to hit a hurdle rate of 14% on an annualized basis to get into our portfolio. And that's actually how we determine the timeline for which we can hold something. We say, at what point, given our expected price, will this no longer be able to generate a 14% return for us all in from the day we bought it? Hmm. And CAS was actually approaching the date, given just all the variables, et cetera. You know, it was approaching the date at which we said we'd no longer be getting a 14% return unless it moved. And we just, you know, within 12 months, we couldn't bet on the price of uranium going to 60. That's a really specific bet. You know, 12 months, 50% rise from here. I don't know. I'm not making that bet. Yeah. Well, and yeah, you're putting a time horizon on it. Makes it, it's hard enough to pick where it's going to go. Then you pick when. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, absolutely. Timing is so hard. So how is uh how is running the fund? How how have you enjoyed that? Uh it's interesting when I when I first started and I think a lot of people start out this way. Uh when I first started I said, "Man, I just like to sit and read and think." And so I'm just going to be able to sit and read and think all day when I run a fund and it's, it's going to be great. It turns out you have to market and yourself sometimes. Yeah, it turns out that there's like this whole business uh side to things. But I, I've had a lot of fun with that business side of things and with marketing and sort of sales. You know, we, we think it, it actually, for the, for the people who are deep researchers, and that's a lot of the manual of ideas crowd, they actually go hand in hand. The investing and the marketing and sales, in my opinion, they, they go hand in hand. If you want to know what we're thinking about and what we, we think might go into the portfolio, read our weekly blog, if you will, because that is just us taking our research and putting it into, you know, into sort of a, well, prose as opposed to like, you know, scribble notes all over the page. So I've actually had a lot of fun doing that. And then, you know, they're raising capital is a bit of a, a slog, but it's got some real moments of, uh, it's it's got some of its own charms, if you will. When you successfully land someone who you've been courting for 18 months, and the sales cycle is like 12 to 18 months for us, um, at least in our experience, that's a nice that's a nice feeling. So we I, I've enjoyed it quite a bit. I have a partner uh, who helps with a lot of the who, who's a better analytical. He's a better analyst than I am. So that's freed up some time for me to do more of that sales and marketing stuff, which I think is value added. And, and I spend more time sitting around just sort of thinking. Um, and, and he backs up a lot of my thoughts with, with information, data and facts. So it's been fun. 
it's, it's been fun. Um, and so it's been a great five years and we we've been running separately managed accounts up until this month. Last year, we secured a seed for a fund. Um, and so all of our SMAs are rolling into a fund. We've got some new investors some new and the seeder uh, and the pooled vehicle launches two weeks or something. That's awesome. So we're, we're, moving in the right direction, I think. And, uh, it's, it's been a great ride. That's very cool. I, I, uh, I wish you the best. I think it's super cool what you've focused on. It's something that there aren't a lot of young guys that I talk to that are focusing on it. And I think that, uh, you know, offering a differentiated product makes a lot of sense. Uh, if you're looking at building any business, so, uh, it's, it's, fun to talk to you about what you do. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate And it's good to talk with you too. I, I love your, uh, your podcast. It's sort of, um, that long form conversation doesn't, uh, doesn't occur often enough. Um, and I think you have a, a bit of a, I don't know, sort of Joe Rogan of finance. I think I said to you once just sort of that long. Conversation I, I hope I'm not quite as I, I assure people I will not go straight down a COVID rabbit hole. <laughs> and uh, I do hope that I come with a little bit more research than he walks into some of these. But it's been super fun, man. It's I'm just uh, I'm really grateful to be able to have the guest list that I've had and and to have the quality of person that wants to come on. I don't know. When I started it, I was like, maybe I'll do five of these. And then, you know, people really liked it. So. Hopefully it continues. Uh, so far, the bookings for this year look pretty good. Good. And uh, how many have you done? Know, as long as, uh, I think maybe like fifty three now or so. Okay. Yeah. Something around there. It's a lot. A lot of conversations. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think I got to figure out like the cadence of like some weeks I'll do two. What I what I try to stick to is like every Thursday people get an investing interview. Okay. And then, like, I'll sprinkle like sprinkle Monday episodes in that are sort of like outside. So I I interviewed like uh, the director of of uh, I think he called it Class Action Park. Great movie. I put that in there. That's like a Monday thing. Okay. But I gotta I gotta figure out how to like balance the cadence because some people are like, dude, it's just so much content. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, which I get, that's the world we live in. I mean, I just uh, sit there. I was thinking about it last night, actually, because I was going to bed and, and I'm lying there in bed and I'd listened to a book on tape for an hour. And I was like, Jesus, has there been a moment today where I wasn't trying to consume information in some way? Yeah. And these days I don't, I don't know what else to do other than to consume information on a continuous basis and try to make sure the sources are good, but it's, that's definitely a challenge. I th- I think, and I don't know this because it's not what I do. I'm I'm in your camp too, but I was I was uh, talking to I think it was on Jim O'Shaughnessy's podcast that I did with Adam Robinson, where he said, you know, I he said a lot of people try to read a bunch. I try to read like one thing and then think about it really, really, really hard for a while, and I think. Uh, there's some balance in between those two things that I'm going to try to do for myself because I do think that for a while I was just like in this constant consumption mode yeah. and then I'd turn around and I, I don't know, like I, I have to take the time to write down my thoughts after the consumption before consuming something else. 
No, it I, sounds silly, I, but taking yeah, the time matters. I agree. I agree. And I mean, that's, you know, we, we were talking before about sort of like schedules and that's, that's one of the reasons why I try to uh, schedule the unscheduled times, what my wife calls it. Um, I basically have these big blocks on my calendar where, where I've scheduled nothing specifically yeah. to have nothing to do. And sometimes I just end up sitting there reading a book, consuming. Um, but I, I started carrying around these little, these little notebooks and just sort of, I used to take a lot of notes in a big notebook, but the problem I found was that the big notebook lends itself to lots of notes and lots of notes ends up being less productive. I think than almost forcing yourself to only, you know, in a little book like this, you can only write a little teeny note. So it's gotta be something really important. Um, huh. It's almost like a way of forcing myself to distill down to that, which is most important as opposed to just taking notes on freaking everything I read. I like that. It was, uh, I started it actually, cause I, I, I tried to get, I tried to get Twitter to work for me, if you will, at times. And, and I just struggle with Twitter. It's impossible to get to work for you. Cause it's just like little thoughts. And then they disappear to the ether yeah. an unsearchable ether. Yeah. And I also, I get really concerned we we had we take a great deal of uh, or like have a great deal of responsibility we think for that which we put out in the world and so for me to say something in that 140 characters it takes me like an hour sometimes to write i've i've occasionally tried to write tweets and sometimes it's taken like an hour cuz i'm like well if i think about it this way someone could interpret it that way or if they think about it this yeah. way and that's not what i mean and and again i try to i sort of think i have a responsibility for that which i put out in the world so I find it quite hard, but, but the idea sort of did come from the 140 characters or whatever, you know, that, that Twitter restricts you to. If I just have to distill every, every note I take down to the most important sort of content, how, how do I ensure that those are the only types of notes I take? Very huh, small, I like very that. teeny little notebook. <laughs> I like that. I, uh, I, I have diarrhea of the head on Twitter, yeah. but I, I don't have, like, I don't have the, I'm not constricted, yeah. right? So I think that that's some of what people uh, maybe like about following me is it's just like, here's the thought. Yeah. Some people will write and they'll be like, this is wrong. Or like I said something on Value After Hours the other day and somebody was like, you know, that's that's not right. And it's like, well, I, I can't talk this much and have and actually think about everything that I'm saying. No. Like it, <laughs> it's hard. This is entertainment, hard. folks. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> we, we all need to ease up on each other uh, when it comes to like interpreting all of our public pronouncements. Um, to be fair, a lot of people are very, very helpful. Like 95% of people are helpful, and I'm super grateful for it because I've had incredible inbounds. And I never thought that like when I started this, I never thought that I'd have the network that I have. And I, I grateful is the only word that I can really use. But there's like that 3 to 5% that it's like, y'all need to lighten up a yeah. little. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so t Twitter, I have It's I have like people. Well, man, I hope that uh, I hope that no one gets too offended at what we talked about. I, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that people stuck with it. 
sometimes when you're talking about climate change and whatnot, I don't know if people come here for that, but I'm going to really try to sell this in the, in the preamble to the show, because I, I really, truly enjoyed this conversation. Good. good. I'm glad I I did as well. I'm doing these things. I'm going to start doing follow-up spaces, uh, like the Monday after the show runs or whatever. So if you want to pop in, like I'm definitely going to do one and I'll announce the time and I'll let you know. Yeah. Let me know. And Follow. Uh, we'll follow schedule. Up space. We'll coordinate. What is a follow-up space? I don't. I'm just trying to get people like spaces. Is this? It's like a group uh, chat. Okay. Basically, it's like a big conference call. Yeah. Okay. But I'm trying to get like people that have listened to the episode, yeah. then to come back and talk about the episode a little bit and like you know because my thoughts sometimes I'll listen to what I said in the episode. I'll be like, I wish I didn't say that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm so not. just kind of like a way to get together. So if you want to, yeah. you know, pop in, I'll schedule it with you. And uh, absolutely. I think it'd be fun. Let, let me and, know when you want to do it. I'm, at, I'm I'm there. All right. We'll we'll uh, ruin some of your schedule unscheduled time. With <laughs> scheduled space. OK, sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Thanks for joining, man. I appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a good you one. You too.